0: The New Testament reading is from 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Since then we know what it is to fear the Lord, we try to persuade others. What we are is plain to God, and I hope it is also plain to your conscience. We are not trying to commend ourselves to you again, but are giving you an opportunity to take pride in us, so that you can answer those who take pride in what is seen rather than in what is in the heart. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old has gone, the new is here. All this is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation.
1: way through paul 's letters to the Corinthian church, and we 've been doing this for quite a number of months, but we've slowed down during the season of Lent, looking at just these eleven verses and i 'm not on thank you ben uh, and we have slowed down and are compressing a great deal into one or two or one or seven sermons, seven sermons on these eleven verses and if you 're used to sort of the verse by verse commentary type of expository preaching where Not really engaged in that at this point because we're only looking at a very small few phrases this morning, compelled by love, and we're just going to sort of meditate on that and reflect upon that. And as I was reflecting upon this passage and this time, which is really a reflection upon the cross and Jesus' work on the cross, and what does that mean for us, I've been haunted or thinking on and off all week about the quote that I put in your worship folder, From the perks of being a wallflower, we accept the love that we think we deserve. We accept the love we think we deserve. On one hand, on a purely surface reading, that just makes sense, doesn't it? It, It's sort of obvious. And one thing that is common with victims of abuse is that it's difficult for them to open themselves up again to be loved, open themselves up to people and receive love because understandably they don't want to be hurt again. And the fact that a person who is trying to love a victim of abuse is in all ways trustworthy and virtuous is almost immaterial. Why? It's because that initial hurt, that initial abuse almost always creates messages of shame and messages of guilt and feelings of responsibility on the, per, on the part of the victim for the other person's wrong. Abuse, you see, doesn't just hurt, but it often makes the victim feel unlovable, incapable of receiving genuine love, even from what possibly could be healing love. And this is not their fault, of course. This is a normal human defense mechanism. We sort of close down when we are abused to prevent ourselves from being vulnerable to further abuse. C.S. Lewis says in his meditation on love, to love at all is to be vulnerable. Love anything and your heart will be wrung and possibly broken. If you want to make sure of keeping it intact, you must give it to no one. Paul says here that we are to be compelled by love. Love. That life is meant to be lived on the basis of Christ transforming love. And here in this passage, here in these three words, we're treading on what is at the very center of Christian spirituality. But in order to do this, we first have to identify, maybe not at the level of being victims of abuse, but those intrinsic and those experiential blocks to receiving Christ's love. And then we need to look at how radically different Christ's love is from all of those loves that we've experienced before. And then what is God up to in offering Christ's love? What is His motivation? Why is He doing it in terms of our experiential lived lives? So we're going to look briefly at the problem of love and then the possibilities of love and then finally the project of love, God's project. So first of all, the problem. While only some of us have suffered what could be considered abuse, we've been victimized by something that has been very hurtful and very painful. All of us have been victimized in some way. We've given our hearts to someone or something, and it hasn't loved us back very well. Or it's just loved us inadequately or conditionally. C.S. Lewis goes on in that quote to say if you want to make sure of keeping it, your heart, intact, you must give it to no one. Wrap it carefully round with hobbies and little luxuries. Avoid all entanglements. Lock it up safe in the casket or coffin of your selfishness. But in that casket, safe, dark, motionless, airless, it will change. It will not be, bro- not be broken. It will become unbreakable, impenetrable, irredeemable. Because to love is to be vulnerable. Now, this is a problem because few of us want to be vulnerable. We avoid vulnerability at almost every step in our lives. And certainly none of us enjoy being hurt, and we're reticent to put ourselves in places where we can be hurt. But we all have been, all of us. And so we come to God as He is offering love. We come haltingly. We come defensively, we come suspiciously, we come carefully, opening up only part of our lives, only part of our hearts. Are you like all the others, God? If I open myself up to you, will you hurt me just like others have? And so we instinctually keep God at arm's length, and maybe like me, we hope He does the same. We hope He keeps His distance. You see, I prefer, dog, I prefer God as a cat and not a dog, and I still haven't figured out how to use this illustration without it being slightly irreverent, but I'm going to charge ahead because I think it works. If a cat lives in your house, it's present. You know it's there. You interact with it to some degree, but there's not a great deal of, shall we say, emotional warmth between you and your cat. Cats are content to sit on the couch and be alone and just lick themselves. But therefore, they're clean. They stay out of the way. And these are all the qualities that we would want in a roommate. We want them to be clean and just stay out of our way. Cats make great roommates. But honestly, it's a strange cat that's emotionally present. It's a strange cat that's not aloof. But a dog, a dog is very different. I trip over my dog constantly because she always wants to be with me. She's always up in my business. If I go lay down and take a nap and I forget to open the door downstairs, she will whine incessantly until I get out of the bed and come down and open the door so she can come upstairs just to lay by me, just to be in the same room. It's quite annoying. She may track dirt in my house. She may pass gas under my bed at night. And most dogs are just dirty and gross, let's face it. But if you're depressed... If you're sad, if you're disappointed, there's no one your dog wants to be with more than you. Even if you're mean to your dog, the dog follows you around. Now, I'm totally a dog person. We have two. But when it comes to God, I'm not. I'm a cat person. I would rather him be a cat and just stay a bit aloof. Be available when I need him. You know, I can go to him, but it's a lot less trouble a lot less demanding if God acts like a cat. I don't really have to be known. I don't really have to open myself up. There's not really much emotional transfer going on. But here's the even more irreverent part, because maybe God's more of a dog person. He wants to sit with us in all of our emotional states, in all of our emotional stress. He just wants to be with us. He's content to sit down and lay beside us as we sleep. He wants to know us. He wants to be man's best friend. I'm sorry. He just wants to be where we are all the time. I'd rather God just be available when I need Him. I don't want to be constantly tripping over Him, but He's relentless, He doesn't want to be on call. He wants relationship. He wants emotional knowledge. He wants to be in our lives. But as Lewis told us, to love, to be loved, is to be vulnerable. And we avoid vulnerability, partially because of our own experiences of imperfect love. God, will you be different than my parent, than my brother, than my sibling, than my uncle? Will you be different? Can I trust you? But also, we hesitate to open ourselves up to God because of the ways that many of us Christians have talked about the cross and talked about God's love through the centuries. And that's where the quote from The Perks of Being a Wallflower has been tumbling around in my brain this week. We accept the love we think we deserve. How would we answer that, most of us in the room how would we talk about that in relation to the cross, in relation to what God did for us on the cross? We accept the love we think we deserve. Isn't the cross a picture of the fact that we are undeserving of God's love? Einstein said that one of the most important questions facing every individual in life or all of human history is whether or not the universe is friendly. And for most of humanity, most of human history most people have just not believed that it is. The gods seem either indifferent or hostile or just plain bored with us. Go away. Leave us alone while we do our business up here. Don't be too loud down there on the earth. And it was in that context that God sent his son to radically undermine that understanding of the distance between God and humanity, to surprise the world in the way that God was and that we thought about Him fundamentally in wrong ways, that you don't ascend to Him through devotion and sacrifice, but in Jesus, He comes down, that He offers forgiveness, He grants appeasement, He extends justice and righteousness rather than requiring it from us. And this is why Paul can talk about the love of Christ in this passage as the foundation of the spiritual life because Jesus comes saying, my life for yours, what you can't do for yourself, I do at the cost of my very life. That's what Jesus comes to say. And in him, Paul tells us that God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting people's sins against them. We really wrestle with that last part for others and ourselves, not counting people's sins against them. You see, this image of the cross that Paul is giving us here is relational. It's an expression of emotional love, of relational love. But what are our dominant metaphors in the church for the cross? They're all judicial. They're legal. They're images of crime and punishment. So in practice, while we talk about the cross as being a picture of love in our everyday lives, we Think of God as being the kind of God that surrounded the Jewish culture when Christianity came, gods that require appeasement, appeasement with our behavior, appeasement with correct beliefs. We hang on to these things to curry favor with Him and to avoid His wrath. It's wrath avoidance, not being compelled by love thinking that He keeps us in our faith, by, in our place, by continuing our initial distress. And so we look at the cross, and we don't see love, but we see anger, we see wrath, we see accounting, we see punishment. So we keep on trying at this appeasement project. Have we done enough? Have I been good enough? Have I believed the right things deeply enough and with all of my strength and Maybe more foundationally, am I lovable? We receive the love that we think we deserve. And so, therefore, we live in fear. We live aloof from God. We refuse to be vulnerable. But the cross opens up. That's the problem of love. The cross opens up the possibilities of love. I'm convinced that this aloofness, this relationship based upon fear and appeasement is not the type of relationship that God wants with you, with me. He wants the intimacy of friendship, companionship, not our continued distress, not our fear. The cross, you see, is not simply transactional, but it's invitational, It's not simply transactional. God was doing that which was required of God to pay off our sin debt. It is invitational. God wants to be with you. He wants to be present in your life. It's a gesture, friends, of breathtaking love. Through it, God is trying to undermine and eliminate our fear of Him. Our appeasement project, He is trying to say in the cross, quit it, stop it. We're done with that. We're done with accounting, not counting your sins against you any longer. So therefore, come and be in relationship, be in friendship with God, not to manipulate us and keep us in debt. He offers His love as the one thing in the universe capable of of making an otherwise hostile cosmos into a friendly home for all of us. It is the only kind of love that can disabuse us and draw us out of our self-protective states and convince us that it's okay to be vulnerable, to be fully present, to be ourselves in His presence. This is, in fact, the great distinction between the love of the Christian God, of Christ's love, between the other ways that people have talked about who God is and how He relates to humanity. There are no strings attached to God's love. God simply loves humans. God simply loves the world, you included. He created for us, He created us for A love relationship with Him. And nothing we can do, nothing that we cannot do, changes that love that He bears for us and holds on militantly for us. Brennan Manning says The God of Jesus Christ is the only God that man has ever heard of who loves sinners. He loves sinners, He redeems failures. He delights in second chances and fresh starts. The psalmist tells us that His mercies are new every morning. Think about that this week. If there's one thing, wake up in the morning and ask, what does that mean for me this morning? His mercies are new for me this morning. He never tires of pursuing lost sheep. He never tires of running down the road to embrace his prodigal children. He won't be convinced to leave us alone. He's not a cat, and that's scary, because he's not content to only be present when we're presentable. He's not content to just be present on our terms when we have space in our lives. But like a dog, sorry, his love is irrepressible. It's irrepressible. Even when we don't return His love, He keeps meeting us at the door, wanting more of us, wanting to remind us of His irrepressible love for us. The Christian God of grace stands in stark contrast to the vindictive, threatening, often capricious gods of the ancient world. Only the Christian God cherishes human beings. While everything tells us that the universe must be organized based upon the principle that you get what you deserve, everything tells us that. We're beholden to that idea, but at the same time, it terrifies us, right? Who wants to live in that world? Who wants to be in relationship with a God like that? And if you're here exploring Christianity and that has been your image of God, this transactional God, the one that you're supposed to be afraid of, you should reject it. And that's not how God is. The Christian God cherishes cherishes human beings. He is not a God of accounting, of you getting what you deserve. God is not a projection of our own image on the cosmos. He is different from anything that we could have imagined. He offers us forgiveness and lasting embrace. And he gives us healing. Why? Finally, what is the project? And why, beyond the fact that this is in his character to love, that the Trinitarian God is constantly giving and recirculating love before humanity ever existed? Beyond that, what is his project in us? What if our Dominant metaphor for salvation wasn't courtroom, but it was hospital. What if the way we talked about the cross wasn't, first of all, transactional and judicial, but it was healing, it was hospice, it was care, it was physician? What if the cross wasn't, first of all, about parsing legal culpability, but making you well, making you whole? then the project of love, the point of God's love, is to remake us all in His image of love. The point of God's love is to remake all of us in His image of love. The point of the spiritual journey is not the acquisition of knowledge, it's not technique, and it's not simply to be made right. It's not simply to be legally justified, but it is to become like Him, In other words, it's to be compelled by love just as God is compelled by love to be with us and to love us and to grant us mercy. You see, that's Paul's primary point that he's making here, right? That we are to live a life that is compelled by love in reflection of the God who is compelled by love. And Jesus reminds us of this in his Sermon on the Mount, that we are to be compassionate just as God the Father is. Is compassionate. God wants to make His life ours, His love ours. He wants us to be more and more like Him, more and more characterized by love. But how do we do that? How do we go about becoming like Him in love? How do we move away from the slavery to our own self-interest and preoccupation and from spiritual practices, frankly, that leave us more prideful than we were when we started. Do we pray harder? Do we try harder? I'm going to do it this time. I'm going to love my neighbor. I'm going to love God. It doesn't work, does it? Do we memorize bigger theological words Then we fall in love with God? The problem with all of these solutions and the solutions that we normally come up, of course, is that they're all self-focused, they're all asking, what can I do? They're all focused upon either our failures or our successes, my diligence, my feelings, my effort. If we were to become more loving, we've got to leave all of these self-preoccupied and all of these self-focused strivings behind as primary solutions. Notice I keep qualifying, <laughs> not first of all, not simply, not primary Love is not a result of discipline and striving. It is, unfortunately for us all, a product of dying. David Benner, in his wonderful little book, Surrender to Love, says this, In spite of how central the cross is to, Christian, to the Christian story, Christians are always tempted to minimize its importance in their own journey. We want a spirituality of success and ascent, not one of failure and descent. We want a spirituality of self-improvement rather than transformation. But the way of the cross is the way of descent, abandon, and death. This is the foolishness of the gospel. The conversion of the heart that lies at the very center of Christianity begins at the cross. It involves meeting God's reckless love at the cross not encountering simply a judicial solution to the problem of our sin and human sin. The cross, you see, is not the closing argument in a courtroom drama, but it's a picture of God's profane love for the world. And it's only when we come back to the cross over and over in the midst of our sin and failure, rather than in our success and self-improvement, that the assertive self begins to die. It's only when we realize that He sees us at our worst and yet He still gives us His best, His very own Son, that we can begin to see other people at their worst and grant them mercy and grant them our best. Leaving aside the theological categories, just a moment, of merit, and justification, and expiation, and propitiation. I know what all of these mean. (laughs) I've been to seminary, and they're important. Leaving them aside just a moment, Jesus looks upon you and says, you are worth my love. He looks upon you and says, you are worth my life. You deserve my attention. You are entitled to my healing. Friends, that's a scary thought because we're beholden to the accounting system, right? You get what you deserve, and we're also beholden to theological systems that talk about God as if He is a God to be appeased just like all of the other gods. It's uncomfortable for us to come into His presence vulnerable based upon His grace alone, based upon the declaration of His friendship alone, not because of our striving and our effort, and our accomplishments. We're beholden to that. But honestly, doesn't it terrify you? It terrifies me. Don't we want, rather, to meet with a God who says, I want to be with you because I made you? And we're going to deal with that sin stuff, and we're going to make payment for that, and we're going to cancel your debt. But primarily, can you look at the cross and see it as a demonstration of His unabashed love for you, His irrepressible love for you, because you accept the love you think that you deserve. Let's pray. Father God, as we wrestle with what are deep theological quandaries, how can we be fit to come before you that the cross is the elimination of our sin and our guilt and our shame, and we need it that we can't come before you without it, that we can't merit ourselves into your pleasure, we can't earn our way into your forgiveness. Father, help us hold on to all of those things that are essential to the gospel and essential to the historic faith while at the same time understanding that you lead by love and that you want us to be loved and to experience your love. Father, help us to rest in it individually as a church, as families here, in our workplaces, in our dorm rooms, in our apartments, in our homes. Father, help us to be people that rest in your love and therefore willing more and more each day to be vulnerable with you and with others. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.